This is the story of God's great love for you. It's not a collection of individual stories from the past. It's one big story that God put together for us to grasp. In the beginning, God created a world filled with beauty and wonder. He placed us at the center of the story. But then sin entered the world and everything changed. We were separated from God. It doesn't end there. From the perfect beginning to the brokenness of sin. And then the redemption through Jesus. God's story continues. It's a story of restoration. It's filled with hope, purpose, and a future. It's woven through every word, every page, and every moment of your life. Good morning, everyone. Well, this is the last season of our series, Grasping God's Big Story. And next weekend will be the very last message in the series. So I hope you'll be here for that. Um, final message and some things we'll share there as well. But uh, we're in a season where we're talking about the future, and we call it restoration, and how we have so much to look forward to in the future that awaits us. So I want to jump right into the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, Revelation chapter 21. I've asked Pastor Dave if he would read for us. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Hear these words from the 21st chapter of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. You may be seated. Thank you, David. So when those words were given to John to, to share with the church, it was not meant just for the early church, to the original hearers of that word. It's actually meant for the church in every age, for you and for me. And when I say church, don't think of building. Think about, think about yourselves. We make up the church. We are the living stones that are part of the construction of of Christ's church. And, and the words were, were meant to encourage. Words were meant to give hope, especially in times that might feel kind of hopeless. And, and I kind of look at what's happening in our world today, and 
And when I talk to people, I get the sense that there is a hopelessness that's kind of out there these days. And even as followers of Christ, I hear that hopelessness sometimes in our own, in our own language, in our own conversations. And I understand that. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty these days in the world. There's a lot of confusion and chaos all around us. And there's issues. The climate just seems to be very weird and very strange. And as Jesus said, you know, there's wars and rumors of wars. There's been the pandemic and always the threat of more to come. There's political upheaval, immorality is rampant. You and I live in a day and age today where we're being told there really is no such thing as abnormal. Everything is normal. And that's how we're supposed to kind of look at it and, and accept it. And all that kind of just breeds then this sense of, you know, of uncertainty and, and this sense of hopelessness. And in fact, I came across some uh, surveys that were just done. I just read this this week. Um, and one of the surveys said that only, only 43% of Americans believe that there are better days ahead, which is like a, an all-time low. And uh, another survey by Gallup that came out said, you know, only 31% of Americans have any kind of confidence in the government, which doesn't surprise us, right? And that's, the, that's kind of the world that we live in and the attitude that's out there. But listen, if, if you and I have a sense of hopelessness, if, if it feels hopeless in our world today, can you imagine what it was like for those early Christians who are being persecuted for their faith? You talk about feeling hopeless. They were experiencing all kinds of loss just because they were following Jesus. I mean, there was loss of family, there was loss of friends, loss of jobs, loss of life. It was a challenging time. And so that's why these words are written. It is meant to let us know that while these times might be challenging, there is a better day coming. So I want to explore this weekend and next weekend this hope that really is ours, it's something that we can grab onto in the future that will help us live and live victoriously in the present times. Now, the way I want to start, though, is I actually want to look at some words that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, words about hope and particularly the hope of the resurrection, because if there is no resurrection, there's, there's just absolutely no hope. If there's no resurrection, forget about the book of Revelation. And so let me talk to you for a moment about uh, this great hope that's ahead of us. It's there because Jesus is risen. And I want to read to you what Paul writes to these <clears throat> early believers to give them uh, encouragement, to inspire hope in them. He says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, he says, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, that means there's nothing else besides this life, he says, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So, you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. 
After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority in power. So what Paul is saying is saying, look, there's hope for us because Jesus, though he died, rose again. And because he is risen, we have the promise, the assurance that when we die, we shed this body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we're also going to have, like Jesus, a resurrected body. We'll be able to run, walk, talk, eat, drink, whatever it is. Because Jesus did in his resurrected body. So, so Paul is saying to them, have hope. There's a, there's a resurrection, a future resurrection coming. Christ was the first and we come after him. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, Jesus is portrayed as a forerunner, a trailblazer. It's like, it's like there's this massive jungle, and he kind of cuts a path through it. it. What he does is he cuts a path through death. Because he died, and death couldn't hang on to him. He was a sinless son of God, and he's resurrected again. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, you and I have the hope that we can follow right in that path that's been cleared for us, and we're going to be with the Lord someday, and we're going to receive a resurrected body as well. So all of that kind of sets the, the foundation then for, for everything that, that we read about in the book of Revelation in terms of our future hope. So I want to talk a little bit about our, our, uh, our future hope. I want to talk about the, the nature of that hope. And there's a lot we could say about it, but... I just want to draw your attention to one concept. It's found in verse 2 that David already read for us. <clears throat> Let's all read it aloud together. Ready? And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And the phrase I want to grab and talk to you about is this whole idea of coming down. And what I mean by that is, your hope, my hope, is a hope that's coming down to us someday. And you might wonder, well, what exactly does that mean when we say it's a hope that's coming down? Well, this is a theologian. His name is N.T. Wright. He's probably one of the you know, smartest, uh, what I would call, orthodox theologians in, in the world these days. He's, he's a profound man. God is gifted and blessed. And writing on this, he says the following... He says, this image that we just talked about, he says, this image is that of marriage, a coming together. He says, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. We're going to talk a little bit about that next weekend. We notice right away how drastically different this is from all those would-be Christian scenarios in which the end of the story is the Christian going off to heaven as a soul naked and unadorned, to meet its maker in fear and trembling. It is not how we go to heaven. It is heaven that comes to earth. It is not we who go to heaven. It is heaven that comes down to earth. Indeed, it is the church itself, the heavenly Jerusalem, that comes down to earth. Again, we're going to look more at that next weekend. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, I sat in so many church services, and I would hear, you know, heaven talked about from time to time. And the mental concept that I walked away with heaven, honestly, was very cartoonish. I just had this idea that, you know, we're just going to 
die and it's like I get, you know, like Casper the ghost. I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm up there somewhere and there are clouds and there's a harp because that's the, the picture you oftentimes see, right? And I'm like, and I was just, you know, you never want to voice these things, but you kind of think to yourself, and that's for eternity? That is so far from what it's really like. In fact, when you read the, the scriptures carefully, as we're looking at it here, it's not that we go up and stay up someplace forever. Actually, we're going to be right back here. This is where it all happens. We're going to have fun exploring that a little bit, like I said, next weekend. But it's almost like an answer to Jesus' prayer. Remember the disciples said, teach us to pray, and Jesus said, here's how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then what's it say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? on earth as it is in heaven. So obviously, that kingdom begins spiritually in our lives, right? But you know what? It's also a picture of what's physically going to happen when God's kingdom comes to the earth, when heaven comes to the earth. Now, let's talk a little bit about heaven. By the way, it's great to see some of our, our young people in the service. And, uh, you know, when I, was a, when I was younger, I always wondered about these things, so hopefully you find it intriguing. Let's talk a little bit about heaven. The person who's written a lot about heaven is a guy named Randy Alcorn. He's wrote, he, he, he's wrote, he wrote this huge book. It's almost like an encyclopedia. It's not something you could start and read through. I suppose you could. But it, it just, it's a great reference book. And he's honest and says, look, heaven's a bit of a mystery. <clears throat> we can only know a certain amount about it. And some things we're not exactly sure. But I'm going to take a stab at it and describe it for you. And there's some things he says about it that I think are, are worth our time to, to think about for a moment. He says, first of all, when you think about God and heaven, you, you have to be careful because God is infinite. He has always been. Nobody created God. But heaven is finite. Heaven is something God created. Now, when I'm talking about heaven for the rest of today, I don't mean the stars and the galaxies, the solar systems. The Bible tells us that it'll be all remade, just like the earth is going to all be remade. When I'm talking about heaven, I'm talking about a place that God creates and that God inhabits the most. And I say it that way because, because God fills up space and space can't contain him. God is everywhere at once. Yet, often in the Bible, we hear about God being in a place. It's like his throne room, heaven, okay? So heaven is finite, so you can't... You can't have God and heaven being kind of simultaneous and synonymous. They're not. God creates heaven, and heaven is this finite place where finite beings like the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the sons, S-O-N-S, small S-O-N-S, of God seem to come and go. And so theologians oftentimes will talk about there's a past heaven, and, and they, they refer to heaven, you know, before the incarnation of Christ. Then they say there's a present heaven, and if you've had a loved one, a friend, someone you know who's died as a believer in Christ, that's where they go. Their body's cremated or buried someplace. That's, you know, that's going to all be changed. We're going to have a resurrected body. But who you really are, because your body's like this glove that you wear, who you really are goes to be of the Lord in what Jesus called paradise. And so your loved one, my loved one, my mom and dad, for instance, are there with the Lord right now. Now, when I say there, I don't, you know, is it up there? Is it right there? Is it over there? All we know is it's a different dimension, which is interesting, and I'm really getting off track here, and I'll, I'll stop with this, okay? Because I, for some reason, by the second service, I'm a little bit more relaxed. I don't know what it is. 
But, you know, quantum physics has been talking for some time now about what's called string theory. Have you ever heard of it? And the idea behind string theory is that, is that you know, mathematically, it, it appears that there could be many different dimensions besides the ones, that, the few that we know. It's this whole idea that, that heaven is a dimension that could be right here, that our loved one could be right here in another dimension. It's fascinating to me. I mean, science to me just backs up the Bible. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't detract from the scriptures. Okay, back on the highway, all right? Back on the highway. So we have a past heaven, a present heaven, but what we're talking about here in Revelation 21 is a future heaven. Okay, and that, you know, that future heaven is that heaven that comes down to earth. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he's going to keep my word and the Father will love him. And I love this part, listen. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, look, if you put your faith in me, my Father and I will come to you, will come to you here and make our home with you. What Jesus says spiritually in John 14, 23 is going to happen physically when the new Jerusalem comes. We'll talk again next week about that. When it comes here, heaven comes to earth. This is where we're going to be. Now, let me give you, let me give you an illustration that at least helps me understand this. I, I've used this before, but I've tweaked it. It's not original to me. I borrowed it. So... Um, Actually, I've tweaked it a lot. So I want you to imagine that you're going to a family reunion, okay? And it's going to be held on the beautiful island of Kauai. Anybody ever been to Kauai, one of the Hawaiian islands? It's beautiful. It, it feels like heaven. It's our favorite, Marsha and Maya, it's our favorite island. So uh, you're excited about this because you have relatives from all over the country and all of you are going to fly from where you live, and you're going to meet in Los Angeles, LAX. And there you're all going to board a plane. And because you're such a large family, it's charter. It's just going to be all of you on a 747. Yeah, a huge family. So you get up. You go to Minneapolis. You, you leave the terminal. You fly out across the plains. You fly over the Rockies, the Sierras, and you land in Los Angeles. And you go to the gate where where you guys are going to get on that plane to go to Kauai, and, and all of a sudden you start seeing friends, uh, I mean relatives that you have not seen in a really long time. There's hugs, and there's tears, and there's laughter, and there's stories, and there's catching up, there's little kids, and middle kids, and big kids, and adults. I mean, it's, it's grandmas and grandpas. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing place to be. And in fact, you're having such a good time, you don't, you don't even notice the time that's going by, and suddenly you hear over the uh, speaker, it's time to board the plane. So everybody lines up, and because, you know, because it's, it's chartered, everything is first class. Great seats, great food, the whole nine yards, and everyone is so excited. You have a window seat, and the plane takes off. <clears throat> now, you expect to look out the window and see blue water because you're going to cross the Pacific Ocean to Kauai. But you, you feel the plane make this, make this big turn, <clears throat> and you're wondering to yourself, what's going on? And you look down. And you recognize those are the Sierras. I just flew over those to get here. It's supposed to be water. And it flies a little bit later. And uh, later on in the flight, you look down and you go, those are the Rocky Mountains. 
Uh, was he taking the long way to get to Kauai? And then you look down, and now you're going across Nebraska, and you see those funny little circles in the earth, you know, where they do the irrigation. And you think to yourself, what is going on? And just about that time, you hear the ding, and the pilot comes on, and she says, by the way, fasten your seatbelts. In 20 minutes, we're going to be landing in Minnesota. And you're like, what on earth? I just left Minnesota. I'm going to Kauai. That's where I want to be. Not Minnesota in the middle of August. Not humidity. Not mosquitoes. Not all the issues. Right? I want to go to Kauai. And the plane lands. And everybody, everybody gets off the plane. And all of a sudden, as you get outside and you start to drive and you start to go to where you just, you just look around and you go, okay, something's not right. Something's different here. I know I'm in Minnesota. But there's no humidity. I know I'm in Minnesota, but there's no mosquitoes. I know I'm in Minnesota, but there are no hospitals because there's no sickness. There are no prisons because there's no criminals. There's no bad behavior. There's, there's no crying. There's no racism. There's no arguing. There's no fighting. There's no jealousy. There's no bad news. There's no crying. There's no pain. There's no cemeteries. There's no death. I know I was here before. I know I just left a few hours ago. This is not the same place. See, that's what we're talking about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. I'm going to be with the Lord. But guess what? I'm coming back. And when I come back, it's the same place, but it's not the same place. Because it's been radically renewed and remade. And Jesus is the governor. And Jesus is the president. And Jesus is the mayor. And, and Jesus is ruling and reigning. Now, if that's true, and I believe it to be true, boy, that's a lot of hope, isn't it? Wow. You guys are pretty hopeless. That's a lot of hope, isn't it? I mean, if we believe it, right, which just beautifully sets up the next point you, you played right into it. Thank you. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the transforming power of hope because, you see, you know, hope is one thing, but, but what is it about hope that transforms me here before I get there and I come back here again? How is hope transforming in our lives? I want to go back to the early church and, you know, there, there were a period of times during the early church where they went through some terrible, terrible persecution. And perhaps the worst was under this evil emperor by the name of Domitian, 81 to about 96 AD. He was a, he was a bad dude. He did not like Christians. Now, the Roman Empire is vast. It's huge. So persecution varied from place to place. Some places it was far more intense than other places. Depends who was in charge. But Christians were, I mean, if you're a Christian, I mean, your life was in danger. And as a result of that, many, many believers, you know, lost their jobs, lost their status. Some were exiled, like John, to the island of Patmos, where they worked as a slave in a mine. Others were crucified. Some were burned. Some were beheaded. Some were thrown to the lions for sport. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if that's what it's going to cost me to be a Christian, you would think that the church would stop growing right there. 
you would think that people would be saying, ah, I'm not a Christian anymore. I, I recant. I, I don't believe in this Jesus anymore. And some did, okay? Honestly, some did. But do you know that during that time, the church actually grew exponentially? Tertullian, who was a church writer and apologist who survived all the persecution, said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, or is the seed of the church. And you wonder, how can that possibly be? How can people who are, who are dying for their faith, how can they be inspiring people to come to the faith? Which, by the way, isn't just something that happened in the early church. We see it happening today in other countries and other places. Where there's severe persecution, but the church grows. Well, the answer, what's going on there is, is, is in a story that I want to share with you very quickly out of the book of Acts chapter 7. It's the stoning of Stephen. But here's the deal. Stephen was not stoned by the Romans. He was stoned by his own, by the religious council. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving this great and powerful sermon. You should read it later. And in this sermon, he accuses the religious leaders of being no better than heathen, which did not go over very well. And I'm going to pick up the account in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned him. And while he's being stoned, it says, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, present heaven. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Now, is he shouting that because God can't hear? No. He's shouting it so that they hear him. Cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. What is it? What is it that's so transforming about hope? How is it that Stephen and so many believers then and to this very day have gone into suffering, have gone to their death in a, in a, in a posture of poise and in a spirit of peace? What is it? It's because they have a fresh, living hope, and his name is Jesus. And see, what happens is the world, the world cannot imagine people being willing to suffer and people being willing to die for something like that if it isn't real, if it isn't true. And so what happens, the pagans are watching this happen and they're going, I want what they have. If you're willing to die for that, it, there must be something to this. It must be real. And the way, you know, I don't want to be going the way of this world because this religion, this philosophy, this government, this, this system, it just, it's poison. It doesn't work. I want to go this way. 
Listen, if you don't get anything else that I say today, I want you to really think about what I'm about to say. Your view of the future, young and old, your view of the future determines your attitude and behavior in the present. Or as somebody else put it, your then determines your now. And so we kind of remember, if you don't mind saying this to me, simply say, my then determines my now. If somebody were assigned to follow you invisibly, which is scary, for two weeks, they see everywhere you go, they hear everything that you say, they observe everything that you do. And at the end of the two weeks, they're questioned and The question that they're asked is, based on what you saw, heard, and observed about Dale's life, watching me, what's his view of the future? What would they say? He has no view of the future. That dude is pessimistic. He's just pretty hopeless. All he does is complain about what's wrong with life and what's wrong with things down here. He's no different than and most people I meet everywhere. In fact, he's almost a little worse than that. Is that what they would say about you? Would they say, based on looking at your life and how you live your life, you really don't believe there's a hope beyond this life? I'm going to explain this more next weekend, but I, I think it's so true. For believers, followers of Christ, are more pessimistic than the most pessimistic person. But they are also more optimistic than the most optimistic person. What does that mean? Come back next weekend. Uh, Let me tell you about two people who were hired for a job. One was hired on one day, and the other person was hired on a different day. They didn't know each other. Here's how it went. The the first person that was hired was taken into a room, just just like our worship center. It was huge. but it was square, like a box, and it was, it was painted white. It was very sterile. There were no windows, poor ventilation, and, and fluorescent lighting that hung way down that kind of buzzed. Have you ever been in an environment like that? It's just constant, all right? And they're told, your job is to unbox or to uh, open up these boxes. There, there are bottles in there. And then on this side, open up those boxes, there are lids in there, and you're to screw lids on the bottle. You're going to do that seven days a week, eight hours a day, for an entire year. But you get Christmas and Easter off. As you finish boxes, putting bottles and lids together, we'll bring more in there. And if at the end of the year you do a good job, you're faithful, you show up, we're going to pay you $25,000. And the, and the person says, I'll take the job. Two weeks into the job, they quit. And they go on social media and they post, worst job ever. Hate this company. It's a sweatshop. The conditions are abusive. The pay is pathetic. Person number two is hired a different day. It's taken into a room adjacent to the other one, exact same kind of room, painted white, sterile, poor ventilation, no windows, fluorescent bulbs all day long. 
They're told your job is to screw the caps on the bottles. When you get that done, we'll add more. You're going to do this for a year, seven days a week, eight hours a day. You get Christmas and Easter off. And at the end of the year, if you do a good job and complete what we ask you to do, we're going to pay you $25 million. Two weeks into the job, the person goes on to social media and says, best job ever. Love the company. Love the environment. Love the pay. When I get done at the end of the day, I can't wait to come back for the next day. It doesn't get better than this. What is the difference between the first person and the second person? It's the end game. It's the paycheck at the end. How much does the paycheck mean to you that you're going to get at the end? It should determine how you live in the now. And that takes us to a really important question. We're going to close with this. How does one get that kind of hope? How do you get that kind of hope? And the answer to that question is it comes down, I believe, to one word, thirst. Thirst. See, what do you mean by that? Let's go back and look at something that Pastor Dave read a few minutes ago. And he also said, It is finished. This is Jesus. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now finish it with me. Ready? To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Thirsty. Now, you cannot have your you you cannot have your thirst satisfied if you're not thirsty in the first place, right? So how do you get hope? You have to be thirsty. Let me take you to a story in the New Testament, John chapter 4. It's the middle of the day. Jesus has ventured into a territory that Jews normally wouldn't go to. It's called Samaria. He's at a well. It's hot. It's dry. He's thirsty. He sends his disciples into Sychar, which is the Samaritan town, to get some groceries. While he's sitting there, a woman comes out, a Samaritan woman, to the well to get some water, and she sees Jesus there, and Jesus says, can you give me something to drink? Or would you give me some water from this well to drink? And the woman is shocked. It's like, why are you a Jew, a rabbi, a man, talking to me, a woman, a Samaritan? That's not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to talk to each other. And look at Jesus' answer. He says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you what kind of water? Living water. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life. You know, when Jesus says this, he's giving her a preview of what we're talking about and what we're going to talk about next weekend, the river of life. Now, that's what Jesus is saying is, I know you're you're physically thirsty, and, and you're always going to have to be drinking something to not be thirsty. But I want to offer you something that will satisfy your soul thirst. What is soul thirst? 
Soul thirst is our thirst for love, for forgiveness, for acceptance, for identity, for significance. Our world is so thirsty. You know, there's so much being said these days about identity. Why? Because we're so thirsty. We want to find something that will satisfy us, something that will say, I matter, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'll satisfy your soul thirst? Well, if you turn to John chapter 19, Tim Keller points out something that Jesus says on the cross. Do you remember it? There on the cross while he's suffering, he cries out and he says, I what? I thirst. Now, obviously, Jesus probably meant I'm parched. I'm so thirsty. But I think his physical thirst is really a manifestation of a deeper thirst, what has been called a cosmic thirst. In other words, what Jesus experiences on the cross is your thirst and my thirst for love, for forgiveness, for acceptance, for identity, for significance. Because our sins were laid on him, he feels our spiritual thirst, and he says, I thirst, and the Father takes his face and turns it away from his Son, and Jesus dies of thirst. Not just physical thirst, a spiritual thirst. He dies your death, my death. He dies of thirst so that our thirst can be quenched. He drinks the cup of suffering so we can drink the cup of eternal life. That's hope. That's hope. And Jesus says, if you place your faith and trust in me, you'll never thirst again. You'll experience an everlasting love. You'll experience infinite forgiveness. You'll experience acceptance and identity and value and significance. And it's all wrapped up in me, your creator, your God. So I'm going to ask you a question. What do you believe is going to happen after you die? What do you believe is going to happen after you die? And I can promise you this, unless Jesus returns or you're taken up like Elijah or Enoch, you're going to die. I'm going to die. If you're a materialist and you believe this is all there is to it, and then you die and become fertilizer, you've got the most hopeless life that a, poss- that a person could possibly have. This is the most hopeless world that you could ever live in. And any attempt to say, well, I know I'm going to become fertilizer someday. I'm just going to do my best to, to bring as much hope as I can into this world Do you realize how illogical that is? How nonsense that is? Makes no sense whatsoever. If there's nothing beyond the grave, then it's every man, woman for themselves, and your attempt to bring hope is absolutely vain and useless. But if you believe that after you die, you stand before God, the God of the Bible, you stand before his truth, and you believe there's going to be a judgment day, And my question is, have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you you given your life to him? Do you believe in him with all your heart so that rather than judgment, you are ushered into his presence? You are ushered into his heaven that will come to earth to be with him for eternity? Because the only other option is to spend an eternity in hell 
and he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. But if you say, I'd rather have hell than heaven, then God will let you have your way. But where are you going to be? Let's pray. That's a pretty serious question to ask and a pretty serious question to answer. And if you're uncertain about your future because you've never fully surrendered and placed your trust in Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity today. God's going to give you an opportunity today to say yes to him. But I'm not going to lead you in a little prayer here in this room that we can just kind of mouth and say, okay, I checked that box. If you're really thirsty, then out at door one and two, you're going to see, you can't miss it, a big bullseye sign out there, a big placard that says, I said yes. There's some wonderful, loving, caring people out there who love to talk to you about what it means to say yes and to help you make that decision. And I hope you would not leave this place without getting your thirst quenched. For the rest of us, who say that we believe in who Jesus is, that we place our faith and trust in him. Listen, as uncertain as this world is, the world needs you to express your hope in him. So Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to do that. Despite our suffering, despite our pain, despite what this world throws at us, may we rise above it, not, Lord, in our own strength, not in something we are guessing about, but may we rise above it because we are convinced of the hope that is to come. And may we, Lord, by the way we speak and the way that we live, may we, may we emanate to the world the hope of Christ. And may you allow us, Lord, the joy of leading people into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.